From Star Trek to Terminator, some of the most iconic science fiction movies feature high-tech passwords. Facial recognition, retina scans, DNA matching, and brain scans are all used to confirm that it really is Spock, or it really is Sarah Connor. But what might have seemed like a vision into the future is now real technology, known as biometrics. One of the companies with the most cutting-edge biometric technology is IBM. They invented a method and system to generate a password by collecting the electrical signals emitted from our brains. Yes, exactly. It's not a clear text password. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. Passwords are as old as human civilization. It's 413 BC, during the height of the Peloponnesian War. The battles between Greece and Sparta are raging, and the Athenian general Demosthenes just landed outside of Syracuse. He's accompanied by 5,000 soldiers to assist in the attack on the city. Syracuse is a strong ally of Sparta, and conquering the city is key to winning the war. Things are looking pretty good for the Greeks. Syracuse has nowhere near enough men, and the city seems sure to fall. But during a chaotic nighttime battle, Demosthenes soldiers are suddenly scattered. While attempting to regroup, they start calling out their watchword. The word had been decided among the army to identify Greek soldiers as friendly. Anyone who didn't know the word was identified as Spartan and was killed instantly. But the Syracuse army picked up on the code and passed it quietly through its ranks. And then, little by little, they started saying the watchword too using it to infiltrate the Greeks and decimate them throughout the night. When the sun rose, the Syracuse cavalry mopped up the rest. It was a turning point in the Peloponnesian War, which ultimately, Sparta won. For pretty much as long as passwords have existed, they've been hacked. Since the Peloponnesian War, hacking approaches have become a bit more advanced, especially in the new age of the computer. The first digital hacking method was the computer virus. In the really early days, people didn't believe computer viruses existed. This is cybersecurity expert Graham Cluley. We were basically selling snake oil, and we would speak to people whose computers had been infected. But for them, it, it was just like a conspiracy theory or a rumor. Graham has been working in the field of computer security for almost 30 years. And you'd also get this conspiracy theory, oh, I bet you're the guys who write the viruses. And it's like, phew, as if we had time to do that. We're so busy writing all these antidotes to them, which was a full-time job. Most notably, I think it was Peter Norton, who, of course, his name is now on a famous antivirus product, Norton Antivirus. A year before the very first version of Norton Antivirus came out, Peter Norton was quoted in the press saying that computer viruses are an urban myth like the alligators in the New York sewers. Yep, and within a year, they had antivirus software out. Graham got his start using technology in the early 90s. 
When I was a poor, impoverished student, I used to write computer games. It was back in the days before the internet really existed, and so at the end of the computer games, I would pop up a message on people's screen, and I'd say, you know, I, I don't have any money, uh, but I have a dream, and my dream is to go and visit my girlfriend who was studying in Paris. And also to go to the supermarket and buy a great big trolley load of cheesy biscuits. Uh, by the way, it displayed all this message while playing the tune from Love Stories. I'd like, da 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 dum Just to just to get the full thing, and uh, and and um, people would send me money because they liked my games, which was terrific. One day, there was a big box arrived for me, and I opened it up, and there was a packet of cheesy biscuits, which meant I didn't have to go down the supermarket. A check for twenty pounds, which was more money than I was asking for. A copy of Doctor Solomon's antivirus toolkit, and a letter saying. Love your games. If you want a job, give me a ring. And this letter was from uh, Alan Solomon. He was like the number one authority on computer viruses in Europe. And I went to work for him, and uh, I've been working in computer security ever since. <laughs> Graham's first job for Dr. Alan Solomon was writing some of the now-patented antivirus software. We would put floppy disks into an envelope... <laughs> and send them out to people, and they would then have to obviously put that floppy disk into the computer and install the software. And if there was a big virus outbreak, we could actually fax you an update. You would receive it on fax, and you would type it in by hand. Now, at the time, there were around about 200 new computer viruses every month. And people then thought that's, you know, that's an awful lot. I remember people ringing me up, journalists, and like saying, what are you going to do when there are 10,000 viruses in total? And it's like, well, well, we'll put another floppy disk in the envelope is the answer. Graham is a pretty nostalgic cybersecurity expert. He even misses the old viruses, the very ones he used to write software to kill. It's kind of a shame because there used to be so much more creativity and artistry around viruses and around malware in general. Because they weren't doing it for money, um, they were primarily doing it as a form of electronic graffiti. And so they would create these grandiose images of themselves and personalities. It's like they were members of the World Wrestling Federation. They would have names like Iceman, The Dark Avenger, Slarty Bartfast, Colostomy Bag Boy... Nowhere, man. But these guys were infecting people's computers. And of course, they wanted to be noticed. So when they infected your computer, they might well put some sort of graphical payload on your screen. Like a green caterpillar scrolling across your screen, eating up all the letters and pooping them out brown behind it. Uh, or an ambulance crossing the screen. You know, they would do something like that. Because otherwise no one would ever notice that they'd been there. They didn't do anything other than that. It was still malicious. It was still against the law. But it was nothing like as unpleasant as what we see today. The early days of computers were filled with this sort of graffiti-type hacking. Definitely unsettling for the user, but not really scary in terms of stealing your data. Graham says he remembers a virus that started to change all of that. He calls it the love bug. The story of the love bug, also known as the love letter or the I love you worm. I'm sure many listeners, if they had a computer back in the year 2000, might well have received this email, which said, kindly read the attached love letter coming from me. 
That virus was written by a guy called Onel de Guzman in the Philippines. I mean, the genius of it was, was that it used the phrase, I love you, which is understood all around the world. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I really love you. Uh, it doesn't matter what language you speak, you know the words, I love you. And you're tempted to click on the attached file thinking it's a love letter from one of your friends. If you did that, it forwarded itself to everyone else in your address book. What people didn't realize at the time was that this virus was one of the first viruses that tried to steal your password. Millions and millions of passwords got sent back to Onel's inbox in Manila. This was during a time when the internet connection anywhere couldn't handle that amount of data. He basically got himself knocked out by the success of that virus. And that was probably the biggest virus outbreak in history. It was absolutely huge. And I think partly just because of those three words, I love you. I love you, 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 baby. This was just the beginning of a major change in the cyber landscape. Now, there was a lot more hacking that involved things like password stealing. But it was the beginning of much more criminality. And of course, if you're trying to steal something like passwords, you don't want to draw attention to yourself. And so you begin to stop seeing the viruses which put great big skulls up on the screen and drip in blood and gore and childish things like that and beginning to become a bit more stealthy. Fast forward to 2020. Now we all know that computer viruses are real. And the internet isn't something for just computer geeks anymore. So what's happened is that computer technology has got more powerful and... Uh, there is more power in your pocket than in the computing power which took man to the moon. So, you know, there's astonishing computer power at all of our disposal. And that aids the hackers when they try and crack your passwords. With this powerful technology, there's a lot to do on the internet. And especially now, in the midst of a global pandemic, we all live on the internet 24-7. So we've seen this shift. We've seen the shift from where people rarely had access to computers and the internet to constantly, constantly having access to the internet. You will check the internet and your email probably before you speak to your loved one in the morning and you'll say goodnight to your phone later than you will say goodnight to your partner as well. So it's a constant thing which is there and we're now doing everything on it. And it's not just that more people are connected to the internet more often. It's that more things are connected to the internet as well, from your toothbrush to your watch to your home speakers. And not only are they all connected to the internet, but they're all connected to each other. People call this the Internet of Things, or IoT for short. A lot of companies are jumping on the IoT bandwagon, but they are not necessarily well-versed in security. And so we are constantly seeing new internet-connected devices which are lax in security, have vulnerabilities, can be exploited by hackers. And this is what hackers are doing. They are hacking into all manner of things, from routers to CCTV cameras uh, to webcams, and taking advantage of them for their own criminal purposes. What's important here is when it comes to anything connected to the internet, your bank, your watch, your email, it's not like you've got a portal that open and closes at your command. Every device and app you have connected to the internet is an ever-open portal. And for those who know how to travel through cyberspace, like today's Nowhere Man, it's an ever-open invitation. Now, we see more than two viruses every second. 
And that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's millions of viruses coming out all the time and Trojans and worms and cyber attacks and all kinds of different things going on. In the blink of an eye, someone has created something new to try and infect your computer and maybe steal your information. If you're going to be using the internet, Graham has some ideas for how to make your passwords less hackable. You've got to stop using the same password for different things because hackers love that. The only solution which I find works is a password manager. I have one today and I think I have over 1,800 unique passwords. I couldn't tell you my email password or my Google password or my Amazon password or my paper. I couldn't tell you any of them because they're all gobbledygook and they're all about 25 characters long. And, you know, they're, you know, I'd have to be Rain Man to remember half a dozen of them. I can't remember 1,800 of them. So I have a password manager which stores them securely and safely, and that's what controls my passwords. But even with his password manager, Graham says throughout history, no one has ever been safe from password hacking. When the LinkedIn hack happened... One of the people who had other accounts hacked was Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg was using the same password on LinkedIn as he used on, I think, Pinterest and on Twitter. Uh, and do you know what that password was? It was da, 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 D-A, D-A, D-A. Mark Zuckerberg. Of all the geeks you would think, that's a terrible password, it goes without saying. It's a real message for all of us that none of us can be complacent. What I think is a bigger problem for the typical computer user is the organised criminals who are breaking into systems and stealing data. It used to be kids in their back bedrooms who were doing mischief. Now it's organised criminals. It is big business on the criminal side of things because the amount which they can earn is absolutely astronomical. Now there's a great incentive for people to hack into computers, to steal information and make money. Hacking has become truly industrialised. An antiviral software mailed on floppy disks can't protect us now. We all have to have strong passwords everywhere and unique passwords. In this current hyperconnected landscape that we find ourselves in, companies are inventing a new type of password. If you've been unlocking your phone with your fingerprint, you've experienced some of this already. What they're basically talking about here is biometrics. And biometrics, whether it be your face or your fingerprint, a piece of your hair, you know, something which distinguishes you from everybody else. Something that distinguishes you from everybody else. Like your brain. Or more specifically, the electrical signals your brain emits. Whenever your brain does anything, anything at all, it emits an electrical signal. That electrical signal can be used as your password. No, this isn't the stuff of a science fiction movie. This is real. And we talked to one of the inventors at IBM who's working on it. My name is Qi Cheng Li. Dr. Qi Cheng Li works at the IBM Research Center in China. He focuses on the ways we communicate with computers, how we can understand them and how they can understand us. I'm a researcher, and uh, I like to explore new technology. And I want to do some uh, work to help people's life uh, more happy, uh, wonderful, more convenient. 
Right now, he's working on building a better password system and method, one that uses the electrical signals emitted from our brains. This patented system and method is called EEG-based authentication. The clinical definition of EEG is the recording of the brain activity over a period of time. In a world where the hackers are now invisible, it really does make sense to make passwords that are invisible too. And electrical brain activity is basically invisible, so it seems like a perfect solution. But therein lies the problem. How on earth do you record brain activity if it's invisible? Chicheng says the first thing you need in order to record your brain activity is a headset. Okay, a special headset. EEG headset detect brain activity. This is the first hurdle for users who want to create and use a brain signal password. Right now, pretty much the only other way to capture the electrical signal requires surgery in order to embed a chip into your brain. As you can imagine, this headset is still cheaper and preferable to surgery. Chicheng thinks brain signal passwords will become more popular once people get used to the headsets. Like wearing glasses. The special headset has these EEG electrodes placed in a ring around the user's scalp. The electrodes are sensors that pick up on and record the electrical activity of the brain. But there's a bunch of stuff still in between the sensors and your brain, like your hair and skin and skull. Think of the brain signals like light from a distant star. The star is so far away that by the time the light gets to us on Earth, it's a little weak. Just like the light from a distant star, we need the equivalent of a brain signal telescope. The signals will be amplified. And then, since we're organisms, we're emitting signals that may not be understood at face value by a computer. So the signals have to be digitized into computer language. After all that, they're sent to the computer or mobile device for storage and data protection. And that's just the first part. Currently, the recognition rate of the EEG pattern uh, actually is not uh, high enough. The recognition rate is not high enough. But what does that mean? Okay, so you're looking at a star, right? Through your telescope. You see the star, clearly even, but you don't have enough unique information to tell which specific star it is. This is what sets IBM's patented method apart. IBM has built their idea off of previous patents. A bank of intellectual property helped inform IBM's patented system and method. Other EEG systems can recognize that a signal is definitely from a human brain, but what they can't recognize is which human. IBM's method can. And it's a three-step process, all while wearing this special headset. Here's how it works. Step one, do something physical. Every brain emits a different signal when it gets the body to do anything. So the system records some sort of motion from the user. And it doesn't have to be a big motion. Uh, let people blink. Step two, follow a directional pattern with only your eyes like a grid with letters or a series of dots. Try this. Look up. Now look to the left. Now look down. 
up, left, down. The brain pattern that you just emitted when you did that, only your brain would produce that signal. And finally, step three. Here's a series of photos to look through. A picture of a beach or a mountain. Whatever the emotional response your brain has to these photos creates an electrical signal that is totally and completely unique to you, the user, and can't be replicated. Someone else can copy the brain waves, but cannot understand what it means. Even if someone got a hold of the data produced from these recordings, they'd have no idea in which order the brain signal was recorded. If you blinked first, or looked at a mountain first, or followed a graphic pattern on a screen first. So IBM combines three different types of brain signals for one authentication process, making it very secure. But I wondered, what if someone made you go through this process, put the EEG headset on you, and forced you to unlock your accounts with your brain? Chicheng says they've thought of that. So when users think to input the EEG password, he must come down. You have to be in a stable, non-panic state when you are initially recording your password. If someone is forcing you to unlock your brain signals, your panic will cause your brain to emit a much different signal, ultimately keeping you locked out. Chichung thinks this is also a drawback. So I think this is the, the limitation of the uh, EEG password. Our brains are complex, and therefore, this technology can be just a little finicky in that way. In addition to our moods having an effect over our brain pattern, as we change, the electrical signal our brain emits changes too. For example, EEG pattern will be changed with the increase of age. Then the, the pattern uh, recognition will not work. The electrical signal emitted from the brain doesn't change every day, week, or even every year. It's a gradual shift over time. So IBM has figured out a fix for that too. And that's for the user to re-record their brain signals somewhat often. Actually, uh, maybe every year. Research for EEG-based authentication is still developing. And with the protection from their patent that was granted in November of 2019, they've got about 19 more years to work out the details. But Chicheng is proud that his IBM team has come this far. I just hope this could make human life more convenient. Imagine if the Greeks had a different kind of password. Maybe even an invisible one, one that required a three-step process. Maybe it wouldn't have won them the war, but it certainly would have given them a better fighting chance. Solving the cybersecurity issue is never going to be easy, and there's never going to be one perfect solution. 
While the EEG-based authentication invention can certainly make human life more convenient, brain signal passwords aren't ready for unlocking our mobile apps just yet. And with new technology, there are always new risks to consider. Right now, not enough people even know how to read a digitized brain pattern password. But there could come a time when they can. What it will take is companies constantly innovating and outwitting the ever-evolving cyber landscape. If we had to use a photo to record our brain pattern for a passcode, IPOEF would choose inventor and engineer Marion R. Croak. She was the pioneer behind voiceover internet protocol, which allows us to talk to our friends and family over the internet. What photo would you pick? Tag us on Instagram at IPO Education Foundation and tell us why. This episode is sponsored by IBM. Let's expect more from technology. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com to learn more. Stroke of Genius Season 3 is produced by Goat Rodeo, a DC-based production company that empowers storytellers. Keep an ear out for us.